Sex and Murder, a cult killer paranormal podcast. Welcome back to part two of the abduction of Jason Andrews. The Andrews acknowledged that something odd had been happening with Jason, but what it was, they couldn't quite put their finger onto it. That is, until after seeing a program on TV about hypnosis in mid-1995. On that show, a guest relayed similar experiences uncovered in hypnotherapy as a case for alien abduction. The Andrews thought to check out this avenue. After all, they had no other explanation, and the events described in the show matched quite closely to the experiences Jason had told them about. This is where a man called Tony Dodd comes in. Tony was Director of Investigations for Quest International, an organization that produced a magazine simply called UFO, which I believe ended publication sometime in the early 2000s. From what I could find online, it was intended to be more of a highbrow uh, kind of magazine. The people employed weren't crackpot, quote, crackpot tabloid journalists. They aimed to approach each case with intelligence and rationality. Tony got involved with extraterrestrial encounters in the late 70s, after he left the police force, where he was described as cynical and hard-bitten. You see, Tony had his own experience. Prior to joining the police force, he had been in the RAF for a few years. Familiar with aircraft of the time, he saw a UFO that, by the very definition of UFO, could not have been identified. It moved strangely and had a strange shape to it. With his colleague, as well as a policeman on the ground, confirming his story, he was determined to get to the bottom of what he saw. He had a few other sightings further on in life, which triggered dormant memories of being abducted. These abductions were done with the purpose of Tony Dodd passing on a message to humanity, a message of peace and unity. Messages like this are fairly common in abduction stories, and we'll see it crop up a little bit later when he talks to Jason. And you see, Tony, he subscribed to the idea that the government was involved in cover-ups, and that not all alien entities are benevolent. Now, despite what I just told you of him, he reportedly approached each of his cases with the assumption of a rational explanation. Of the cases he had taken, about three quarters of them had a reasonable explanation, and most of the remaining had too little information to draw an accurate conclusion. And so we have Anne reaching out to Tony, who took the case. You see, the case was interesting to him. Since Jason had conscious memories of what had happened to him, to a point, during the abductions, when kids were Jason's age, it also made it easier to discern if the whole thing was a hoax, See, kids were easy to trip up in their stories and find little inconsistencies. The following weeks after Jason met and talked to Tony, he started to sleep better. Over the next few months, he would see both the therapist and Tony to try and work through his problems. Feeling like he was getting nowhere with the therapist, they opted to cease seeing her. She stuck to her guns that it was all the delusion of some fashion, as a profession in this position probably should. 
wanting to run courses of antidepressants. Tony, on the other hand, not only believed Jason 100% in what he said, Tony also believed that the aliens were grooming him for something special that he was yet to uncover his purpose. A few weeks after meeting up with Tony, the Andrews house started to have strange happenings again. This time it was a smell. A sickly sweet smell, like burnt sugar. When it was first noticed that night, the family were all sick with stomach cramps and diarrhea. It wasn't just the house, Anne's car also had the smell, and a mysterious flat battery. And they could smell it from the farm as well. It was particularly strong near the field where they had seen those strange figures standing. They searched everywhere for the source of the smell, but couldn't find it. Then, as mysteriously as it came, it just stopped. This wasn't the end though. Light bulbs frequently exploded and animals would get randomly scared or hostile. Once, Anne heard a noise in Jason's room. She opened the door to find a wind-up toy buzzing around the floor, swerving when it was about to hit something, suggesting that someone or something was controlling it. There was another case, similar to his fourth birthday, where Jason walked downstairs, seemingly in a trance. There was a thunderstorm that night as well, though more of the regular kind without any knocking. And Jason sat down in the living room and began saying numbers. It wasn't like he was working on a formula, but rather reading numbers from a screen. At one point he announced that he was working, quote, to the sixth decimal place. Paul went upstairs to get a tape recorder, but by the time he got back, the thunder had stopped, and so had Jason. Jason came to and Anne reassured him where he was and what had happened. The time surrounding these events, Jason would be really tired, bad-tempered, and frightened. These were linked to further paranormal visits from the big ones. Jason began to be able to predict these visits. He would get a funny, almost tingly feeling in his head and just intuitively know. On these nights, Paul would fall into a deep slumber. You see, he'd become a light sleeper and made it a habit to check on Jason several times a night. The deep slumber prevented him from doing so. Anne organized a holiday for the kids, including a school friend of Daniel and Jason's. They took the caravan to a park and the holiday went initially well. Halfway through the holiday, however, Anne woke to Jason screaming. She went to his room, which he shared with his friend Mark. Mark was in a deep sleep and did not in any sense seem to be disturbed by his friend absolutely screaming his lungs out right next to him. Anne grabbed Jason and tried to calm him and was met with resistance. There was a change. This time Jason told her to stop touching him, to leave him alone. He then spoke softly and told her that they were letting him feel what they feel, see what they see, and that he would be alright. Anne went back to her room. Sometime later, Jason entered her room and asked if he could sleep there. As he climbed onto the bed, he reminded Anne that she shouldn't touch him. Anne noted that his voice was unlike a teenage Jason, but rather mature and growing. 
The following morning, Jason made no mention of the night before, and continued the holiday as if it had never happened. Later that night, Anne was roused by a noise on the roof of the caravan. She said it sounded like the boys were playing football up there. Then the noise came from the living room, but it was more of a rustling sound. She was sure that it was the boys, so she called out to them. The noise stopped immediately. She got up and checked the kids. They were asleep. She then went into the living room and looked around. All seemed normal until she got a chill looking at the window. There was a clear image of a face in the window. Anne grabbed a pencil and a piece of paper nearby and sketched the face. The copy of Abducted that I have features images as well, and quite frankly, it's the goofiest looking image. It's a good drawing, don't get me wrong. The face just looks funny. Think typical grey alien, but if it face-planted into a glass door, it's all just like squished and distorted. It is very weird. Anne wasn't the only one to see it, though. The boys saw it as well. Daniel and Mark pointed it out to Anne and had a little bit of a laugh about it. Jason, on the other hand, was completely quiet. After the other boys ran outside, Jason told Anne, I didn't think they would find me out here. The rest of the holiday was uneventful. Upon returning home, Anne noticed a new clock in the living room. An old and ugly walnut clock. It wasn't working correctly, Paul told her. He'd found it when he was cleaning out the shed. Despite not working and not having the key to open and fix it, this clock would randomly tick as if wound, chime, and the hands would move forward as if it were working perfectly. previously mentioned Jason's affinity for animals, horses in particular. It was when he was riding a horse that he had an encounter with one of the entities. Now, he'd had plenty of spills from horses, and it had never deterred him from riding before. His previous encounters with the aliens had somewhat desensitized him, and he no longer felt real fear for them. Instead, he understood that they were trying to understand, trying to share his experiences and they shared him theirs. He was riding this particular Sunday morning, and he could feel the presence with him when his horse was spooked by another coming up behind him. He fell, and the back hoof of his horse dug into his shoulder. But he didn't feel anything. He checked for broken bones, and there were none. And he was sure he would feel sore later, but despite the horseshoe mark on his back, he felt absolutely no pain. Jason knew that the aliens had taken the pain for him. He also believed that the horse that had spooked his was acting on a somewhat of a sixth sense to protect him from the visitors. This incident is the reason Jason gives for having stopped riding. He tried again over the years, but he blames the aliens for depriving him of the joy of riding. Quote, It's as if they won't let me enjoy it anymore because they don't enjoy it and they don't want to get hurt again, he says. He told Anne of the experience, and Anne asked him how long ago he had known that they were there. Jason told her of a bike ride, 40 clicks round trip, that he had taken years ago with Daniel and two of his friends. He was enjoying himself until he just wasn't. See, he felt like someone was with him, watching him. 
and relayed these experiences to Tony. Tony, who was too good for the term alien and referred to them as EBEs, that is extraterrestrial biological entities, had heard of this before. Tony's hypothesis was that the EBEs were incapable of feeling emotion and relied on attachment to humans to almost vicariously experience emotions. In all this time, he had never heard of anyone disappearing for good and reassured Anne that Jason was the one in control and that it was by his will that the aliens were able to feel and not feel his emotions. Uh, he punctuated this by telling her that it was actually a good thing. Instead of fighting and being afraid of his experiences, Jason seemed to be learning from them. But Jason wasn't completely fearless. A couple of nights later, he woke Anne and Paul up, pale-faced and frighteningly calm. He told them, if you look out the window, you will see them. Now, I personally would take up the opportunity in an instant, but Anne and Paul at this moment were quite afraid, understandably, understandably. Slowly, they looked over and saw nothing. No faces, nothing. But as they looked longer, Anne noticed a pinprick of a light that was moving. It seemed to be getting closer. Soon, light was filling the room, and the orb was about the size of a soccer ball. And that's when they both wake up at 7am to their alarms. They went to find Jason, and Anne saw her reflection. She was ghastly pale, as if she had had a fright of her life. When they found Jason, they asked him what happened last night. Jason told them that they had fallen asleep, and the EBEs had taken him again. He remembered his experience this night quite vividly, though. The EBEs showed Jason what Earth's government did to them. Jason saw dissections, cut eyes, bodies suspended in tubes, experiments, and soldiers shooting at them. He was then taken to a large room with a monitor. On the monitor was an image of Earth, and the room was full of hundreds of people. Anne interrupted. It suddenly blew up. There was a low whistling sound, and then it just blew up. Jason nodded and said, I saw you there. It seems as though Anne's memories of having been abducted when she was younger were beginning to surface. Paul was never 100% certain that what Jason was experiencing was aliens, but mounted with the evidence, along with new revelations from Anne, he finally gave in to the evidence. It took him a few days, but he worked with Anne and Tony Dodd to piece her missing memories back together, and slowly things came back. A tall alien in a hood with small ones around it, touching her, making her feel weightless. Time stood still as she floated, feeling like she was suspended in liquid. Another time, Anne was frightened by a hooded figure when watching Popeye cartoons. And once, when she was at the park with her father, they came across three figures, tall, fair hair, blue eyes, and dark skin. They seem to have been waiting for them. The leader smiles. Her father draws her closer, and the feeling of the sun ceases. Anne can no longer feel the wind. Her vision dims, and she knows she isn't in the park anymore. I guess they're now in a kind of void space. 
The three figures are now wearing white robes. One takes her hand, and his face is like that of a human's, except the eyes are larger and completely black. She was taken to a large hall, kind of like a church, where some more children were running around and playing. There she meets a mute boy, who takes her hand from the entity. And then that's when Anne's memory ends. This mute boy, she believes, would become the soldier man that visited Daniel when he was younger, and would eventually be the entity responsible for guiding Jason. She has flash memories of being in an operating theatre, a sterile white room being observed. She also recovers memories relating to her miscarriage, the dream that she had where she simply had a bad feeling before. She saw the little ones, and a tall one. It was quiet, except for some shuffling, and then she was in a bright room, paralysed. She could feel something cold on her leg, and realised that they were spread apart. Then she felt a pain in her lower back and stomach, and she knew then that she was losing the baby. She closed her eyes, fearful for her life. When she opened them again, the light was being blocked by a large head. Her eyes adjusted to the light and she saw the face of a man with blue eyes. He didn't speak, but she was able to hear him. He told her that it was for the best, and then she fell asleep again and awoke in her bed. After recovering that memory, she began to study accounts of alien breeding programs and was worried that the child she lost, or even Daniel or Jason, might have been an alien-human hybrid. Tony believes that Anne's miscarriage experience is important, not just for her, but because she was certain that the creature that carried out the operation was human, or looked exactly like human, which aliens to this point had not. This would indicate that this human was exhibiting supernatural powers, being able to communicate telepathically with her. Now, little caveat here, I am not a woman. I have not had to even consider the possibility of losing a child like she had. However, for Tony Dodd to say that it was an, quote, important experience for Anne makes him sound like a little bit of a shit. Moving on, there isn't really any evidence of cross-species breeding in Jason's experiences. Only in Anne's and Tony Dodd seems to lean heavily into the fact that EBEs are involved in breeding programs with the ends of either jump-starting human evolution to the next level, or merging the two species into one in an effort to adapt humans to live on alien planets. We also have plenty more little incidences similar to Jason's early experiences with random marks turning up after this point, and seem to have developed also a sort of precognition sense. And we find that Anne really digs herself into Jason's narrative from this point more than she had previously, I'll comment on this towards the end of the episode, but just keep that in mind. For now, we'll move on to an incident with the quite sceptical Paul. Paul had never had anything strange happen to him directly. Everything he experienced was just because he was within the blast range of Jason. He checked in at the farm late one night, something he very rarely did. He pulled up to the gate and could see with the headlights that the animals were all awake and moving about restlessly. But the dogs weren't barking and the geese weren't honking. 
the animals were all quiet. A bright light lit up the sky and a large circular object began to rise from the woods. It hovered for a moment, then darted around, stopping only for a moment at a time. It seemed to be the source of the light, which was too bright for Paul to make out the craft entirely. The shadow shifted as if it flew around the property. The animals weren't restless now. In fact, they were standing completely still. Without warning, it shot up into the sky, and it looked little more than a shooting star in the distance. Paul hurried home and was a little rattled. He told Anne what had happened, and Jason walked downstairs, upset about sleeping. You see, he was sensing an abduction that night. The following morning, Jason woke up with two divots in his leg, like someone had almost scooped out the muscle under his skin without breaking it. He was bad-tempered, and there was mud all over his pajamas. Paul told him to take a bath, and that's when they noticed more marks on his chest. By the next day, Jason's quote-unquote injuries were healed. But there was a strange smell in Anne's car, and both her car and Paul's truck had dead batteries, even though Paul had been using his only less than six hours ago. Now we have something new happen. Anne awaking in a similar manner to Jason after he had his abduction nights. She was beyond tired and limping. Paul commented on this, but Anne dismissed it. She simply hit her knee or something on a bedpost. Who knows? Jason's marks typically were gone within a day, so it didn't seem to worry her that much. The pain, however, stuck around for the rest of the day, and after dinner, she was sitting at the table inspecting the now swollen joint. Jason walked in on her and told her that she would find a small incision on the back of her knee. That was where they put the silicon chip he didn't know what it was for, but he remembered where his was implanted and that it hurt for a couple of days. Anne went to the bathroom and checked, a small V incision behind her knee. A couple of days later, the swelling subsided and the pain went away. In addition to the one he remembered implanted in his knee, Jason also had a chip in his nose. Probably due to the proximity to the brain, a lot of implant stories tend to have them implanted in the nose itself. This one, however, caused him constant pain. He would eventually remove it, yelling at his family to come have a look at the mass of bloody tissues in his hand. It was a small metallic object the size of a pinhead, and Anne placed it into a matchbox. This, along with other physical evidence, seems to have vanished. And that's something I have to point out, like I said before, I'll talk about my thoughts of it all towards the end, but it seems like every time something solid that could be documented happens, it mysteriously vanishes. Jason wakes up with burns on his legs and they call a doctor. Four hours later when the doctor arrives, legs are healed. It's like they never were burned. Yet other marks seem to take a whole day to disappear or heal. Again, we'll get to that at the end of the episode. Now, after one particular spell of abductions, Daniel was particularly upset, as was Anne. At this point, they had been in regular contact with Tony Dodd, and he had put them in touch with a couple that had similar experiences with abduction to the Andrews family. Maria had been abducted before as well, though it didn't look to be the same as the Andrews, just that she was experimented on with strange instruments. 
Again, I'll have some thoughts on her at the end of the series slash episode. One night, Anne and Paul were awoken by sounds coming from Jason's room. Daniel had made it there first and was crying that they had taken Jason. Paul wanted to call the police, but Anne stopped him. Instead, they did the more sensible thing and called Maria. Maria told Anne that Jason was special, that he was a, quote, original soul. And that's why the aliens were interested in him. Anne then remembered Daniel telling her that the soldier man that he had seen when he was young had been waiting for Jason because he was an original soul. Maria assured Anne that nothing bad was going to happen to Jason. A flash of light filled the room. Jason then walked downstairs to meet them. Jason then told his family of what had happened that night. He had met one of the tall people, who showed him a map, possibly a star map, and told him where he came from, and that they had been watching Earth for hundreds of thousands of years. He then saw a toddler playing with a sparkling ball along with some little ones. More little ones showed up, and more toddlers appeared. Jason explained that his experience this time had been pleasant. He believed that the man he had talked to was Daniel's soldier man. A week later, Anne had a premonition, because of course she did. Laying in bed, she heard a low humming. She managed to get Paul awake, who confirmed that he heard it too, and then fell back asleep. Anne walked around, noting that the noise was coming from every area of the house. She went back to bed and awoke the next morning. Daniel asked her if they had seen it. What was it? The football. It was a big blue ball of light, Jason told them, that was inspecting the area. It went through each of their rooms. Daniel had tried to touch it, but it dashed away. Both kids had fallen asleep before the light left. In April 1996, Paul was up and heard talking coming from Jason's room. Jason was sitting in his bed, talking a strange language. Paul woke Anne up, and together they listened for several minutes, before Jason turned to them and said, in English, Oh yes, the mother, and then laid down and went to sleep. On Tony Dodd's suggestion, they tried to record it. Good suggestion, Tony. All their equipment jammed or was distorted or turned off when they tried to record. Tony told them, of, of course, that was common with paranormal recordings. The Andrews were somewhat concerned about the language Jason was speaking. They certainly couldn't pick it up as a language they knew. And when Jason was speaking it, he would sometimes slip in English words, sort of like how bilingual households will use an English word that doesn't have like a real equivalent in their native tongue and vice versa. And Anne didn't like the way Jason called her, quote, the mother. And Paul didn't like it after he and Jason were having an argument and Paul told Jason that he should do what his father told him to do and Jason replied to him in a voice that wasn't entirely Jason's. You don't understand, do you? I am more part of them than I'll ever be of you. Paul contacted Tony and explained what had happened. Tony didn't have direct experience of this, but he had heard of reports like this coming out of America. He assured the family that even though abductees usually went through a spiritual change, he had never come across one that had changed allegiances and turned on humanity. Anne had another experience that may have helped calm her nerves. She dreamed of being in her childhood home, watching her child self. 
Child Anne was playing when a ball of light flew overhead and she followed it upstairs, the adult Anne following them. She was then awake, staring at a figure at the end of her bed. She closed her eyes, and when she opened them, the figure was closer, near the window. It was raining and a gust of wind blew the curtains up, cascading over the figure's head. In a panic, she tried to wake Paul up, but he was in a deep sleep, so deep that he could not be roused. Anne got out of bed and ran to make sure that Jason was alright. He was still asleep, but she could hear shuffling down the hallway, coming towards them. Filled with terror, she sat down in a chair beside the bed. In a moment, the figure was at the door to Jason's room. Now, what she saw was a young man, naked and completely soaked. One would be fearful, probably even more so in this situation, but rather her fear dissipated. You see, he was frightened, and Anne reached out for him, and he held her hand. It was freezing cold. That was the last thing she remembers before waking up in the morning. Tony Dodd believed that this was an abductee that was mistakenly put back in the wrong place. The aliens realized their error and fixed it immediately. Now, this may explain the reason why Jason was always found in the wrong place as a baby. They had placed him back in sort of the general area, a kind of good enough, I guess. The ufologist Nick Pope, who has some brilliant books that I hope to cover on this podcast in the future, believes that this sort of sloppy attention to detail will lead to concrete proof of an abduction. Now, to change it up, we have an instance of out-of-body experience. Jason woke up one night and got out of bed to go downstairs. When he turned back, he saw himself sleeping in bed. He tried to scream, but he couldn't. He knew that Anne and Paul were downstairs, and just like that, he was there. No walking, just instantly standing beside the table that they were sitting at. They were talking about going on a family holiday. Jason mentioned specifics like Anne asking Paul if he thought it was a good idea if Jason's mate Alan joined them, but Paul was distracted by the news on the TV, and Anne had hit him with a rolled up newspaper. Now, Anne was careful to keep the brochures away from the kids, but the fact that he had known about the newspaper, she believed him completely. Jason then outlined the night further, how the dogs reacted to something outside and how Paul then put them to bed. Once again, they turned to Tony Dodd. Tony assured them that Jason was simply more psychically attuned than the average person, and that meant that he was more likely to have experiences like this. He told Jason that he thought aliens had given him this ability for a purpose, and he just had to figure out what. We get a more vivid experience described to us a few days later. Anne and Paul heard Jason screaming in the middle of the night and rushed to him. As soon as they had calmed him, he told Anne to get a pen. He was remembering, trying to remember the experience. He was in a corridor, white and bright like a hospital hall. There were no windows, but the walls were covered in doors. It was empty. Jason heard a low humming noise. He walked until he came to a dark colored door with two people either side. They were dressed like soldiers or guards, dark blue uniforms and a white belt. Their arms were hidden, their socks were over their boots, and their shoulders had something like curtain tassels hanging from them. On their heads were dark berets. One of the men was white, the other black. Jason enters the room. The men do not seem to have noticed him or 
try to stop him. The room he entered was large, like a hall. High ceilings and a shiny floor. Again, no windows. To the left were some panels with buttons, as well as a bank of TV screens. Two more men, these ones both white, stood next to the TVs. Down a small staircase opens into a large hall completely. A row of tanks, two men in lab coats observing. Jason describes these six or eight tanks as being like large milk bottles. Each had a number labelled on the bottom. Red lights in the ceiling turn on and off intermediately. Inside the tanks was liquid, and within the liquid were things floating. Jason tells Anne that he knows what's in the tanks. They're bits of aliens. Jason then says that he got angry, and red lights all pulse together and sirens begin to sound. Men, soldier types, rush into the room, but no one knows what is happening. They can't seem to see Jason. And that is the point when Anne and Paul pull him out of it. It seems like Tony Dodd was right. Jason's OBEs did have a purpose. He evidently had to see the military personnel experimenting on captured aliens. After that, Jason didn't have any more OBEs. The family continued to have strange things happen to them, but I would be here forever if I had described each set of keys that went missing or each shape that they thought they saw in the night. One event of note happened to David. One evening, his cat was acting strange, as if it was disturbed by something. They let the dogs out and the cat had a go at them before disappearing into the dark of the night. David went out to search for it. After a while, Anne went to call the dogs back and saw David's torch in the distance. He was running back to her. While looking for the cat, he had seen a strange creature. He reports that it was large like a leaf, roughly half a meter long. It was green like a fresh leaf and had veiny tendrils covering the body. David had suspected a fox to be the cause of the spooks and had a bat with him. He hit the thing with the bat, but only once. You see, as the bat made contact, the creature sort of just disappeared and the bat hit the ground. Now, David was a more sensible kid, so he chalked it up to simply a hallucination, being upset that his cat was upset. After that, in addition to the precognitive feeling that beings were about, David's cat would meow and purr at Jason nights that he was visited. This correlates with other stories of abductions, that animals are sensitive to events, with cats in particular being thought to have the ability to see paranormal beings. We even have a story earlier from Paul that the animals were highly attuned to that sort of thing. It seems as though the powers that be really didn't want the family to live on the farm. We have the initial scuffle with the council about living on the land. We have a barn burning down at one point and we have the devastation of their animals. We have vandals breaking into the mobile home. Before applying to move back onto the farm, they got an assessment done on the land to find how many heads of cattle that they should have on it and such. The first hurdle was that it wasn't a local council-run ministry of agriculture now. It had been privatised and the rep reports were good for the Andrews. They could etch out a living, but that meant 
nothing to the council for them to move back in, nor did it sway the banks on their loans. The building plans that Paul had secured when they initially bought the place lapsed after five years, so they had to go through resubmitting the plans again, getting new quotes before submitting to that to the council. Then they had to get electricity, not just generators, and water, not just a water tanker, once a week. They quoted up these utilities, extending their wait to move in by several more months at least. Finally, once all that was organised, before the council allowed the family to move back into the property, the matter of their finances reared its head again. Violet wrote to the council, assuring them that she would be financially backing them. With that problem out of the way, another objection surfaced. The plans submitted needed to be cleared up. They wanted every little detail of the building, down to the nail. The reason for this was a concern that the new buildings would be visible from the footpaths that ran down the length of the property. Now, it was extremely rare that anyone outside of the kids returning home from school would ever use these paths. Paul's way around this was to get a professional landscaper to suggest hedges and trees that would completely obscure the new buildings from the road. And the objections just kept coming, with the reports they initially handed in not being valid in the eyes of the council, who only accepted calculations from Kent County officials who valued it much lower than previously. They continued to live in this limbo, where they made too much for benefits but not enough to move back in. The same Kent County official also spoke up about the idea in general that they would start up a ranch. His concern was about mad cow disease. After the local council put a definite stamp saying no on this one, the Andrews family just, they gave up. A nail in the coffin was the property just over, was able to get approval to remove their mobile home and erect a one-bedroom house and start up a small ranch of its own. Now, officially, the council would have no problem with the house being built and a ranch erected on the land, provided it passes all the necessary requirements. Paul found out unofficially from a friend on the council that the authorities were opposed to anyone inhabiting the land. When they were evicted initially, the council folded rather quickly on having dogs go with them, to the government housing, almost as if they wanted them to get away as soon as possible. Last time they were offered a council house, they had to give up their dogs, though this was in a different council district. Now, you may remember me mentioning the woods lining one property had a wire fence that marked the Ministry of Defence land, Mearworth Training Ground. The edge of the woods was actually the end of the Andrews property, and the woods up to the fence was owned by a somewhat absent landowner. Every once in a while, a third party would drive through pruning trees and generally cleaning the place up. Mearworth Training Ground itself had fences around it with big signs saying keep out. But if they were ignored or fell into disrepair or missed, people inevitably wandered in. When they did, they were quickly escorted out by soldiers bearing rifles. Kids managed to sneak around the empty areas and could snag some pretty nifty empty shell casings, even though it was common knowledge that there were unexploded shells littering the land. A fire raged through the area in 1997 in which firefighters had to retreat because of explosions from said shells. Firefighters inevitably not expecting to be fired back at. Many people had noted, including the Andrews, a high-pitched sound that came from the training ground. 
It was infrequent and often too high for some to hear. Anne said it wasn't something you initially noticed, but when it stopped, a wave of relief would wash over your body. During the sound, the animals would be restless and unhappy. On a property less than 500 meters away from the Mearworth training ground, property owners reported hearing humming sometimes, and their daughter would get headaches whenever the humming started. They also saw lights, a disc-shaped object about 150 meters across, made up of hundreds of small lights once hovered over the grounds, and once moved and hovered over their barn. In both cases, the lights would rotate, speeding up until they had completed a one and a half revolution before halting and then rotating again at regular intervals. Tony Dodd believes that this was all orchestrated in an effort to get the Andrews off their land. The outbreak of salmonella amongst the cattle was actually a radiation leak that they purposefully released, he believes, and that's why there were men in radiation suits that collected the carcasses, obviously. Now this is where our journey sadly comes to a close. Since the book was completed in sometime 1997-98, and I cannot for the life of me find any further information on the people involved in this story. Every time I thought I found something new, it turned out to be just a reference to this book as the source. Maria believed that Jason would continue to have paranormal experiences until he was out of his teenage years, in which case he would pass on the, quote, alien gene that made children of abducted people more likely to experience abduction themselves. She believed that the aliens that visited Jason had been guiding humanity since the dawn of time. I believe that this woman has no idea what she's talking about. It seems like she's just sprouting nonsense that sounds supernatural and spiritual. Tony Dodd is either honest and genuinely believes in his role in all this, or else he kind of has no idea what he's talking about. His interactions with the Andrews, at least from what I read in this book, seem to me more like that of a grifter. The whole, this strange thing happened now, and he's just like, yeah, that happens sometimes, we don't know why some, some do, some don't. For all his, quote, rational talk, it comes across as if he took everyone at their word and didn't try and formulate theories that didn't necessarily take into account his preconceived notions of extraterrestrials. And I have to admit, I do have a little bit of a hang-up on his telling a traumatized Anne Andrews that her miscarriage was ultimately a good experience for her. And speaking of Anne Andrews, her suddenly having experiences halfway through this story it may sound like I was dismissive of her experiences, but I feel like this is more a case of being wrapped up in hysteria. Maybe that's a little too strong of a word of it, but she went along with it. She she got caught up in the, the hype, as you will, of the story. Now, I'm going to put a blanket offer out here. If Jason Andrews, Anne Andrews, or anyone else involved in this story happens to stumble along to this podcast then I am extending the offer to interview you. I need to know if these events continued, and ultimately, how, Jason Andrews, have you lived with these events through your years? Now, despite no physical evidence, the family knows that it happened. 
And while I'm ultimately a skeptic, I feel that Jason Andrews, and to a lesser extent the rest of his family, had experiences that cannot be explained by science as we know it today. Whether that means that extraterrestrials have visited us, I'll leave that up to you listeners to determine for yourselves. This has been the Sext and Murder podcast. Thanks for listening.